we go, rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition, as we do every week. Today's episode brought to you by rockauto.com. Our guest today, two-time All-Star, ninth overall pick out of UNLV by the Bulls back in 78, 13 years in the league. When he retired, he was one of four players with 19,000 points, 6,000 assists. That list, Oscar Robertson, John Havlicek, Jerry West, and our guest, former NBA player, coach, college head coach, Reggie Theus. Why do you think the impression of you is that you've always lived a charmed life? <laughs> wow. That, you know what? I've, I don't know if I've ever had anybody um, ask me that question sort of like that before. It seems simple, but I don't, I don't really know the real answer. I think, and I say this in a way, Noah is is that people look at me and they see the somewhat of a finished product, and it, it it appears to be effortless, but they have no idea who I am and where I've come from. And I'm not a finished product either, because I'm growing and and still fighting and still wanting to do stuff, and you know I'm still in that grind mode, and I, as I've always been. But people have always had, I think, has something to do with being in California. You know, they get the Hollywood thing. That, you know, and there's there's a plethora of probably reasons, but it, it's it's really interesting, and it actually has hurt me in a lot of ways, in a lot of cases, uh, over my my period of time of life. All right, so we'll we'll get to the ways that it's hurt you. We're going to go over the course of your your whole career, and I'm sure that's going to pop up a few times. But let's let's start from the beginning and just get an understanding of where where you're coming from. As I was was researching, came across the fact you went to Inglewood High School and you wanted to be a baseball player as you were growing up. But what what fascinated me is when you got to high school, you were playing high school games against Bill Lambeer. What was he like then, and what was your relationship like then? Bill was an asshole then, too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know how to tell you. You know, we're, we're actually pretty good friends, but he was a jerk then, too. <laughs> um, we always laugh uh, because I, I always tease Bill about, you know, one time they were pulling off from our, our, our gym, and people were shooting at their bus as, you know, as they were pulling away. So, so I <laughs> – it's always been a kind of a running joke, you know, um, but Bill and I have known each other a long time. We've, we've competed against each other for, you know, not only the high school, obviously in the pros. And um, then, you know, after we retired, we, we worked together in Minnesota. We, we play golf together. Um, and uh, I think that affectionately, I, I, I don't think he minds if I call, if he, if I call him that. <laughs> sure. You're not the first. I'm sure you're not the first. <laughs> No, no, no. It's, it's probably a part of the everyday routine somewhere where he is. No matter where he is, somebody's calling him that for sure. <laughs> could, could you have taken the next step with baseball or football? Uh, there are a lot of people that know me well that would, said I would have been a better baseball player. Um, you know, I pitched. I played anywhere in the infield. I pitched. I, I, I batted cleanup. Um, I even caught. You know, at, there was a time when I was a back catcher. So, um, you know, there was a lot of people that said I, I threw a, a fastball, I had a curveball, I had, you know, I had a lot of ability. Uh, I was quick. Um, 
I had a good eye. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it was something that was really, really, I'm playing, I was on three different baseball teams when I was a kid. I come home, change uniforms, go to another park. Uh, it was just what we did. Um, I played quarterback and wide receiver in, in football. Um, I was one of those guys that could throw the ball and run out there and catch it myself. You know, one of those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so yeah, no, I, I think I could have been, uh, a really good baseball player. I mean, obviously don't know where it would have taken me, but if I had the same passion and the same, you know, focus as I did in basketball, I think that would have become a pro. Yes. What led you towards basketball then? Well, you know, one thing, I was one of the smallest guys on my, my eighth grade basketball team. I, I was five, two as a sixth grader. And then by the time I was an eighth grader, I was, I was, I was five, seven, I was, 5'10 as a, a freshman in high school, then I was 6'5 when I graduated. So I was just growing, you know, like, you know, just like a weed. I, you know, every every couple of years I, I I put on like two, three inches. And then there was one, one year I put six on, seven on. So I was a little guy who, who basically played guard, uh, you know, point guard my whole early life. Like I said, I was one of the smallest guys on my, my eighth grade team. Matter of fact, I made the eighth grade all-star team in junior high school and had a baseball game the same night. And I gave up my spot on the basketball all-star team because I didn't want to miss my baseball game. Hmm. So yeah, that was, that was kind of the thing. And football was kind of, it, it was, I played in high school. Uh, the team wasn't very good. Um, and one time I was playing at Rolling Hills, which is up by where Bill, Bill's school was in Palos Verdes. And I was going across the middle, short yardage play at Colin A slant, uh, stretched out a little too far, and they high-load me and folded me up. Uh, and my basketball coach came out on the field and said, uh, I think you're done, buddy. I think oh. this is the last time you're going to play football because they hit me pretty hard. And, uh, and it was cold that day and it was raining, so uh. it was not a good moment. <laughs> that, that's painful just – thinking about yeah yeah really really but but you know a uh, great moment in my life uh football and baseball sustained me you know uh, i i really believe that it gave me the tools that 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 allowed me to become a, a, a you know pro basketball player baseball with the high uh, eye and hand coordination being able to play in the street being able to play in your in your your driveway with the wiffle ball you know uh we used to we used to have this game that we played called Great Plays, where we go in our neighbor's yard, and one guy would get on the other side of this hedge, and we throw the ball over the hedge, and you have to dive over the hedge and make the catch. And then you know the key was you had to yell Great Play. The only <laughs> the only <laughs> the only difference was it it hurt really bad if you hit the sprinkler on the other side. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it was fun though. It was a lot of fun. And you start off running back and, you know, you'd have to time it and you'd have to dive over and catch and roll and, and all those things. But, but what I always tell people is that the games you play, the way you grow up, the little things that you do, uh, running relays in your driveway, jumping over trash cans, um, dribbling the basketball up and down your driveway when you got other little kids and your gra- driveway is narrow. And you, you have to dribble, and, and you're playing this game. Uh, they, 
there's a there's an actual name for it that uh, is called a bull in the ring, I think, in a basketball terms. But you would pl- you dribble the ball in the in the driveway, and guys would try to steal it from you, and you really only had, you know, maybe eight to twelve feet to to go by them, and it, so you're really learning how to dribble the ball. Uh, I used to dribble the ball with my fingertips, uh, watching TV on my front porch. We played basketball with the the goal stuck in the little wire that goes underneath your garage. And, you know, there's so many things that you would do as a youngster that help you develop the eye-hand coordination, the ability to play. And you don't even know that you're developing these skills. You're just playing sports. Mm-hmm. And I and I and I really I really really believe that because I've watched over the years and of course now things have changed drastically because got every 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 six year old has a has a personal trainer now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Now the the other thing that that sports teach you across all sports is resiliency. And yes, in in seventy one, you're part of the first class at at Inglewood High School. Um, to um to deal with uh, integration so oh, yeah there you go you guys did your homework so what what kind of what kind of racial issues did you did you face as a high schooler yeah no it's um you know inglewood i would have gone to morningside which is the same school uh lisa leslie went to that school byron scott went to that school there's uh, a bunch of you know professional athletes that went to morningside and when I got to Inglewood, I grew up in what we would call the real South Central LA. Um, it's the real South Side. It's around 118th and, and Maine in Los Angeles. Um, now, South Central is half of LA. So I don't know how that happened, but it just happened. Uh, call it white flight, call it everything you want to call it. But it, it, it's now a much larger area than it was when it first started off. Um, when I got to Inglewood, uh, I, the the neighborhood that I was in, I think there, I think we were the only black fam- family there, maybe one other black family in the area. Um, and you know, I, I always praised my dad because you know my dad was a uh, had his own custodial business, uh, probably couldn't really afford the house. We had a house that didn't have any furniture in it, you know, and but he moved us into what he thought was a better area. And um, that was the first year that they integrated. Inglewood High School was predominantly white in the middle of Inglewood. And Inglewood at that time was all white. Um, the junior high school over there was called Crozier. Uh, and the, the, the uh, junior high school on the other side was called Monroe. And the high school was Morningside. I went to Monroe um, junior, junior high. And then they integrated Inglewood. And they bust us. It was the first time they bust people to another side of the city. And in that, there were all kinds of racial tensions. Uh, there were also, there was racial fights. There was misunderstandings. There were all kinds of things that I watched. I watched Inglewood. White flight is something that was, I didn't really know what it was at the time. But as I got older, I realized what it was. And because after, by the time I was a senior, it was almost 70% black. And um, uh, it was, we started off with as a really bad basketball team with a, with a really 
you know, good basketball coach, but not not a lot of talent. And and then by the time I was a, a junior, we were you know fighting for state championships. But having the the understanding of different cultures at a young age really helped me. Uh, I thought that exposed me to things that I would have never got exposed to if I didn't go to that school. Um, so I'm so even with the negativity of of, of the racial fighting and and the misunderstanding, because what, what I believe is that so much of race is not understanding the other side, not being exposed to the other side. And, you know, cause I, I even live that today. I have, you know, I'm a big hunter and fisherman. I'm an archer, you know, and, and I have a lot of buddies who live in Montana and, they're not exposed. So I have to, you know, kind of help them through this, this whole racial injustice thing because they're all, you know, different guys. They're all Trump supporters, proud Trump supporters. And then I'm probably one of their only black friends. And so we have these enormous conversations and I think I've enlightened them on quite a few things because they live in a bubble. They don't really understand certain things and, and they're good guys, but, they grew up differently. They grew up with, you know, with their grandfathers and their, their great grandfathers being very racist people. And so that's kind of what they know. And, 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 and being afraid of, of other cultures and, and, and not being willing to, you know, accept other cultures is, are things that, that make us all ignorant when it comes to race. But then in high school, if you said that, there were a lot of fights, a lot of misunderstandings, but you learned a ton. How did you stay above that fray and then enter into those conversations where you were the one who was learning and, and not fighting, if in fact you weren't fighting? No, I was fighting, but it was okay. I mean, I got in a fight with a couple of narcs. I got in a fight with a couple of people. I mean, you know, but over time, by the time I was a junior and senior, basically the school was pretty together. You know, we had a lot of the, the a lot of white people that just absolutely wasn't going to have it. They moved, but you know, there was quite a few that were still there, and we all got along really well, and we all sort of accepted each other, and and you learned from each other, and 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 the school had a great balance of 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 um, you know, a, a mixture of people, and then of course it be it started, you know. Uh, uh, Hispanic people started moving in, and now there's whites, black, and Hispanics in the in the school. So uh, there was a there was a lot of going a lot going on, and and you know, like I said, being a part of the uh, the problem, and then ultimately turning that problem into part of the solution, and becoming friends with a lot of those guys, and, and I'm still friends with today. Uh, it, it it made for a, a great story. No, we'll get more from from Reggie in a moment. But I do want you to think about something, you know, now with the ever increasing amount of makes and models for cars, it's it's almost impossible to stock all the parts that you need in a traditional chain storefront. So, of course, why would you go through the pointless or intimidating questioning like, hey, is this your Odyssey? Is, it, is that an LX or is it an EX or what do you got going on there? I can't figure any of this stuff out. You know how I am. I'm terrible with it. And 
I also wouldn't want to sit there and wait while the counterman's ordering parts on, on his computer, um, finding then that it's only parts that the warehouse has. So now you got to wait for a shipment. So all that being said, you might as well save the money, save the time, and go to rockauto.com. So rockauto.com, family business. They've served auto parts customers online for 20 years. You go to rockauto.com, shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, even new carpet. So whether it's for your classic or your daily driver, you get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. So you just quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle. Choose the brand, specifications, and prices that you prefer. And best of all, those prices at rockauto.com, always reliably low, incredibly low. Same for professionals, do-it-yourselfers, and whatever the heck you would call me. So why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car or truck. And right Locked on, L-O-C-K-E-D space O-N, locked on in their how did you hear about us box so they know that we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. You leave Inglewood, everyone's expecting you to go to UCLA, and of course you end up at UNLV. What is (laughs) the Jerry Tarkanian recruitment, what does that look like? (laughs) Well, let me qualify this by saying, in those days, there were no rules. In other words, you could go see a player as much as you want. You could do things. I'm not talking about giving money, but you could be there (laughs) 24-7. There were no – the rules were different in those days. Different, yes, Um, yes. Coach Tarkanian was – wanted me really – bad to go to UNLV and basically Lynn Archibald who was his assistant coach pretty much lived on campus and became really close to my 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 high school coach and my high school coach already knew Jerry from his days at Pasadena and um uh the biggest factor in that obviously was style of play for me the fact that it was close to Los Angeles the fact that several players from Morningside High School, which were in my neighborhood, they were already at UNLV. Um, And then on top of that, uh, Coach Wooden retired in 75, which was the year I I graduated. So that factor. And then obviously Bartow, who's a great guy, he he kept recruiting me. Uh, Mm -hmm. I knew a lot of people. I knew a lot of guys that were good players that were going to go to UCLA. Roy Hamilton, which is a great friend of mine. David Greenwood's a great friend of mine. Several other players were going to go to UCLA, and we were all going to be fighting for position. The style of play was not 100% what I wanted. And I went to a small high school, so being at a big college was not that big a thing for me. I, I was, you know, and I knew UCLA so well like when I went on my visit to UCLA, I was there like a half a day because I was showing the guy, I was showing the guys that were showing me around. I was showing them around. You know, I, knew everything. <laughs> I, I knew where the gym was. I knew what was going on. Cause I have, I've, I've been there so many times and I've played in their gyms, you know, a, a thousand times. So 
I think the biggest factor was the fact that uh, Coach Tarkanian uh, was there every game, almost every day. And then, of course, John Wooden retiring um, were the two major factors for me not to go to UCLA. And, you know, it's funny because Tark said that I'm the only player that he ever, you know, got from UCLA, that basically that was recruited by UCLA and didn't go there. Hmm. So mm-hmm. I, that always made it special for him. So your sophomore year was a, a special season. And I want to, before we get into the Final Four, I want to talk about the Louisville game. Before, and that, that season, Louisville is dunking on everybody. Before that game, you yeah. said, I'll kill somebody before I let them dunk on me. And then there's a 13-minute stretch in the second half when both teams score 39 points. You guys win the game at home. You hit some big free throws. And there was champagne in the locker room. You want to talk about no rules. College kids with champagne <laughs> in the locker room? What, what, do you, what can you tell us about that night? Well, honestly, I don't remember the champagne in the locker room. I didn't drink, so it didn't matter to me um, what was going on. In Vegas, we did it. We did it large. We did it big, and you know, it was a, it was a big time program. It was a mid major program that was basically recognized as a high major program, and um, but the the community, the city itself, uh, the most unique situation you could ever be involved in in terms of college basketball the love of the city the big city the bright lights so forth and so on celebrities uh gucci row i mean we were the first with the light show um i i used to sit there and watch players during the light show and you could tell that the game was already over because they were just they were in so in awe of what was going on around them um and uh you know but it was fun and and I you know, like I said I don't really remember the the uh, champagne. I doubt that 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 that's, that might be just a myth. <laughs> I doubt that uh, it wasn't that cool. You know, like Jerry was cool, but he ain't that cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's uh, it was it was certainly fun. I, now Vegas is 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 such a kind of place where they would take some bottles of champagne, put something, you know, some. Some some uh you know some Pellegrino in there and shake it up and make it fizz uh, you know okay. you know and that that's that's the kind of stuff that Vegas would do to keep it you know to keep it on the high side. So final four, you guys are the hard way eight for just being relentless yeah. on on both ends. You set for folks who don't know that that team set NCAA records in points, hundred point games, consecutive one hundred point games. You had twelve straight one hundred point games then. Final four against Carolina, losing by a point. You're up 10. You're up five with 17 minutes to go. Larry Moffitt goes down. You're big guy. You're forced to play in the post. You lose 84-83. How would your life yeah. have been different if you had won that national title? Wow, who knows? Gosh, I, it, it, that's – you know, I was drafted ninth as a, as a junior. I almost left – you know, that's that after that year, I almost left um, school. What what it would have done for the university at that time, you know, eventually the university won a national championship. But in 1977, that would have been even bigger news because the school was just sort of scratching the surface of where it was going. Um, and we, you know, we were probably the better team. Uh, you know, we played a style that was fast and, 
you know, in Vegas, if you didn't score 100 points, you'd get booed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people didn't. But people didn't understand about our team is that defense was our main thing. You know, we our 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 mantra was we're going to play 40 minutes of nonstop pressure basketball, and we pick you up inline to inline the entire game. And our goal was we called it a quick six. Our goal was to stop you from getting across half court three times in a row. And if you took a charge, the coaching staff would run laps around the bench. They would be so excited. And so it became a real important aspect of of our team. Our team's averaged 25 turnovers a game against us. I was actually drafted into the NBA as a defensive player because of my – you know, because I was – they saw me at the Final Four. I put the clamps down on Phil Ford. In, in that in that uh, four corners offense, he couldn't get the ball, and so people thought that I was and I was a point I was the point person on our press, so I got drafted with the idea that I was going to be a great defensive player. Um, that was short lived. Big mistake, big mistake uh, by Rod Thorne there. <laughs> by the way, the same way you, you just figured you'd played enough defense in college that you didn't need to that do was it. Anymore. This is the last no, time. No, you know, honestly, what it was is I was really good on the ball. Where I fell defensively was off the ball when it became, you know, about, you know, help and all that kind of stuff and, and, and positioning and stuff. But put me on the ball and put me in a, a very athletic scenario, I could do that. Um, but in the NBA, you find, very, find out very quickly that you have a job to do. I mean, when I got to Chicago, my job was to score. and you know, there's only been a few guys in the history of the game that has been as good on one end as they were on the other end. So, um, and those guys are like Kobe and Michael and, you know, guys like that. Um, So my job was to score. So once I found out that that was the the way to go, I think that my mentality was more about uh, getting the ball in the bucket and not so much who I was guarding. Reggie, before we go into the the – NBA stuff. I am curious that you guys scored all these points. It's, it's kind of chaotic defensively later it became amoeba defense that, that Tarkin still, right. but, but it's, but it's running gun. You guys are running rebels, but I know you've talked about the idea though, that it was structured. Can you explain oh, what structured. you mean by that, that it was a structured way of, of running and, and fast break style of play? Well, see people, then when they when they see run running gun basketball when they see up tempo basketball all they can think of is chaos all they can think of is that these guys are just playing you know ghetto ball and 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 this is not real basketball and and and, and for sure that probably actually hurt me a little bit my fr- my first year in the NBA but uh, and that's that's a, another part of the story um what people didn't understand is that we had numbered lanes. You couldn't run anyone else's lane. You had to run your lane. So if you were on the other side of the court and the ball went off the rim and we started a fast break, you'd have to literally run from that side of the court onto the other side of the court to get mm. to your lane. If, mm. if you wanted a chance to shoot, because the ball yeah. was going to go up within the next 10 seconds. So it made you really, really like work at it and run hard. Uh, three-fourths of our practices were about defense. 
And Tark's mentality at the time was, look, you guys play offense naturally. You don't need to work on that. We need to work on what we're doing defensively. What we're going to do offensively is that everybody has their rhythm. Tark was one of those guys, he take you out of the game for not taking your shots. He said, because there's no such thing as a bad shot if you're in your range and you're in your rhythm. Now, if you're not in your range and you're not in your rhythm, okay, that's a bad shot. But, you know, for the most part, I was probably the third or fourth best shooter on the team. So there were guys coming across the half-court line, getting to the hash mark and letting it go because they, they could make them. And, uh, and, and remember, we scored 110 points a game almost with no three-point line. Right. So um, his mentality was just very different when it came to uh, the way we played. And, you know, and, 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 you know, the thing that I respect so much about Tarkin, the way he coached, is that he was sort of a chameleon. You know, he, he structured, and he, he, he said this a long time ago to me, there's two types of coaches. You know, there's one that has a system and makes, let's, makes the system, you know, work as players. And the other one is that you have players and you develop your system from your players. And I took that with me as a, as a basketball coach is that I was always willing to change. I was never stuck in one way that I had to play. And the, your, your personnel, even as an NBA coach, it really helped me. Your personnel tells you what you should do. Your players tell who should play. And your players tell you mostly 80% of what's happening on the floor. You can structure it, but the players decide what's going on and how you play and how fast you play and how many three-pointers you take and so forth and so on. Um, but in that, uh, I could only shoot the ball in that structure. I could only shoot the ball at certain spots on the floor. Mm. And and that's why it was so structured. It wasn't that guys would just catch the ball and just jack from where, wherever they were going. Uh, that was never the case. So we were very structured in how we played. And the offensive side had rules, uh, but the, the it was really about our defense that made us score so many points. So, Reg, when you get to Chicago, after spending your whole life in California, college at UNLV, how how quickly did you buy your first fur coat? <laughs> you can blame Artis Gilmore for that, by the way. Oh yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah. It didn't take very long because Artis had this full length, you know, fox coat that you know he was wearing, and I was 19 years old when I went to Chicago, so obviously I was, you know, enamored with Artis and everybody else that was around there because I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I came to Chicago with, uh, you know, I had, first thing I bought was a, a Mercedes. You know, obviously, a kid that never had a car, you're going to buy a car. And, you know, here in California, you had personalized license plates. But, you know, in Chicago, Chicago being a blue-collar town, they, they were called vanity plates there, which mm-hmm. kind of like a, ne- a kind of a negative, you know. But in California, everybody had their name on the car. So I, I went to Chicago with my name on my, basically a canary yellow uh, 450 SEL. And about three days into the into being there, someone stole my license plates. <laughs> so I, I ordered some more, and then two days later, they stole those. <laughs> so, 
I guess that wasn't a good thing. <laughs> what was the last, when was the last time you looked on eBay for the for the Reggie Theus vanity plates? <laughs> I, I don't know if I ever did, but that would be something. That'd be what I gotta I gotta look that up. So you're <laughs> so you're scoring buckets right away, and in '81 you make your first All Star game, and you're yeah. starting on you're starting on that team, and Dr. J and Larry Bird, and your teammate artist Gilmore. Who was the one in that all-star locker room that everybody was enamored with in awe of? Well, I, you, you could, you're never going to be bigger than Dr. J at that time. You know, um, Dr. J was, was everything. He was, you know, he was all about what you grew up watching. Uh, I'll never forget the time that I, I stole the ball from Dr. J my, my rookie year. He called me Rook, by the way, which is, which I, I, I just, I, I just love the fact that he gave me a name. Um, and, uh, he, matter of fact, he still calls me Rook every now and then. Um, <laughs> so I stole the ball from him and I was so excited. I was like, Oh my God. By the time I got to half court, it stole it back and went down and dunked the ball. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that's how things went. But, uh, uh, playing in the All-Star game with, with Dr. J uh, and, you know, Larry Bird and, and, and artists and, you know, all these guys, it's, it's just, just amazing. I, I, um, I'll never forget I made a round-the-back pass, a behind-the-back pass down the middle to Dr. J, and, and he, he was, he, 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 he was going to catch it, but for whatever reason, it just slipped out of his hands, and I was like, oh, you know, it's like – it's I, I can't really say what I was going to, but it's like something on whipped cream, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but it was it was so amazing, uh, and, and you know George Gervin for that matter, uh, you know there was it was, you know Magic. It it was just so full of real players and just, you know the the atmosphere was was pretty incredible. What's your what's your best George Gervin story? Oh wow. I, I'd have to. Well, I'll give you the short version. The short you can tell version, the long one. We got time for the long well, version. It's well, fine. George Gervin was kind of like Michael Jordan in, in in those days. I mean, he was a guy that, you know, obviously he could really give you numbers. So, uh, the night before you play against George Gervin, just like the night you play against Michael Jordan, you know, you don't sleep real well. And I was a rookie, and so I can only go by what I've been told and. And so getting ready to play George Gervin and the night before, and you know, you, you're just you're just nervous. You get to the arena, and your guys are telling you, "Right, we got no shot if if you don't guard this man the right way. If you don't, you know, if you don't play him." So I'm a rookie. I'm playing well that year. I'm, um, you know, I'm in the fight, in the hunt for rookie of the year, and uh, you know, we're playing George Gervin. He only weighed about a buck fifty at that time. Uh, so the, you know, so the, by the time we get into warmups, I'm at a full blown sweat. I'm just, I'm beside myself and the game starts the first time he gets the ball, I, I knock him down. The next time he gets ready to shoot the ball, I actually poke him in his eye. It, you know, uh, <laughs> in, we're in Chicago stadium and people are going nuts because they just assume that I'm just all over George Gervin and I'm scared to death, nervous as hell. And I'm just being, I'm, I'm a complete fool. George never said one word to me. And this, this had such a profound 
effect on me that I actually wrote a speech about that moment later on in my life. Um, and, 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 you know, George is an enormous shit talker too, by the way. Um, but he never said one word. Um, we go into halftime and we're up by 12 or 13. I've got double digits. George is having a horrible game and guys are patting me on the back, you know, talking about how great I'm playing against George Gervin and so forth. So I'm, I'm feeling myself and I'm thinking George Gervin, shh, whatever, you know, and, and I'm definitely going to be rookie of the year now, you know, uh, and I'm warming up for halftime and George walks out and he kind of walks by me and sort of slow looks me, kind of looked me up and down a little bit. And, it, and I looked around and I, I didn't think he was actually looking at me because you know, George Gervin, he's not going to look at me. Um, and he just kind of looked at me and nodded his head. And, um, and it kind of, it scared me a little bit because I, I, re, I remember reflecting on it. Well, um, I went into halftime with no fouls. George was playing terrible. We're up by 12. You know, George is not, I don't know how many points he had, but it wasn't that much. Um, by the time we get to the fourth quarter, I foul out. George has 35. We're down by 15. and the worst part is is that after the game is over george walks up to me puts his arm around me and he says you know what young fella you're gonna be all right you just keep working hard and he pats me on my ass and walks away and i go wow are you freaking kidding me and it's like (laughs) You know, you're just sitting there going, what the hell just happened? And from that, I wrote a speech that was about pride, was about, you know, talking trash, the game's not over, what real superstars uh, are like during the game, uh, what you learn from somebody that really knows what they're doing and being humble and the game's not over until, the la- until you know, basically until the buzzer sounds. And there was, you know, a lot of analogies that I drew from because I really thought I had it going on that day. And I really thought that, you know, I was walking through the, the, the door. Mm-hmm. And by the time the game was over, I was shown the door, basically, and shown what it was really all about. Uh, and the game changed, and we lost the game. And, but at the end of the game, uh, he showed me great humility. He showed me what a superstar is all about. He showed me that, you know, that he didn't say a word to me the, the entire game, even when I knocked him down, even when I poked him in his eye. And the only thing that he said to me when he got it going, and he said it sort of in these words, oh, young fella, watch out for the left hand. Bam, I told you to watch out for the left hand. It was the only thing he said to me the whole game. And it was, it, basically, it was, that was when the game was really falling. Um, so I learned a lot from him. It's an awesome story. Well, that, that second year was the, the famous coin flip Bulls Lakers for the first pick. Mm. And that's the magic Johnson draft. Magic has said that he would not, he would have gone back to school if the Bulls had gotten the number one pick that he would not have come out in the draft. He was not going to Chicago. He ever told you that? (laughs) Uh, I've never been told the story by him. Um, I, 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 um, I don't know if I've heard that before. Um, 
but wow, that would have been that would have been something. I tried my best to get to the Lakers throughout my career and never could make it happen. Um, but man, that would have been something. You think I, he would have done it? I don't think so. I think he would have. I think he would have come. But you know, he. Uh, but Magic is different. I mean, he had. You know, he has been wise beyond his years for a long time. And um, yeah, I don't think he would have because you know, when you're ready to go be a pro, you're ready to go be a pro. You're not gonna not not go out. You're not gonna go back to college because the right team didn't draft you. I, I don't think that that would happen. But to put that out there, uh, obviously, was there was a reason. Somebody gave him some great advice. Your fifth season, the 82-83 mm-hmm. season, you start out the first 11 games maybe as hot as any guy, at least in that decade, has started out. Yeah. Four 40-point games, you're averaging 30 a game, shooting 61% from the floor. What right. What is it like when you're you're in the zone like that and just cruising every single night? Well, you know, you, you you work so hard to be in the best shape ever, and you learn how to play basketball all over again when you get to the pros. Uh, and I was really uh, – the style of play, if I remember right, that was Westhead's year. Mm-hmm. And he was playing a style of basketball that fortunately fit me perfectly but didn't fit anybody else on our team because that was <laughs> – <laughs> that was a lot yes. like what I played in college, you know. Uh, you know, um, there has been several times that year that artists would get a rebound and I'd start running for the for the, the outlet pass and he'd pump fake me and, and tell me to come back and get the ball. So, so he'd slow the game down, you know, because I was going to run up there. I was going to run out there and if I had a shot, I was going to the hole, that's for sure. Um, because that's the way Wes had wanted to play. Was, everything was full court. Everything was fast break. Everything was, you know, about pace. So he was a little ahead of his time too, um, you know, now with analytics. But um, uh, what happened is, is I was averaging around 28 points, 29 points a game. And, you know, when it became apparent that we weren't going to make the playoffs, um, you know, your time goes down, the mentality of the team changes, um, I'm playing sporadic minutes now, and it, it costs me, you know, four or five points a game. Which, you know, you know, when you, you know, if you're thinking about the game in a, a very selfish standpoint, and the way you see things now, averaging 29 or averaging 24, it's it's a huge difference mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. your popularity and endorsements, and you know what people say about you. I mean, there's it's a, just a different level of basketball. And, you know, obviously the most disappointing part of my career is, you know, playing on teams that really were never really that good. But what people don't understand is the amount of concentration, the amount of self-motivation, the amount of really loving the game had to be twice as much because you – most of the time you weren't playing for a championship. You weren't playing for a sold out crowd. You, you were, you were playing because you loved the play. And, and that the challenge was that, you know, you're going to go out there and, and get us, get your team as close as you can, even if you're not good enough to get them over the top. But, you know, it's, it, people don't understand that it's not easy night in and night out when teams have to game plan 
they don't have a whole lot to worry about but you. So it it uh, it it made a difficult career for me, but it's, at the same time, you you, you know, I'm, I still feel very blessed to even be in that position. How much did you love the game when Kevin Lockery was your head coach? Kevin Lockery is an asshole, and and obviously, you know, even to this day, I, I'd like to tell him that because what he did to that my young career, uh, he could have destroyed my career, and. He could have, you know, hurt hurt me tremendously as a basketball player, and he did. Actually, I ended up getting traded, uh, and, the, and the owners didn't want to trade me. Rod Thorne didn't want to trade me, but they had already fired five other coaches. I had six coaches in my first five years of, of, of my career. Right. And, and uh, you know, I still today don't even know why he, 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 wanted, he wanted to get rid of me so badly. Um. You know, I have I had just come off of that year you were talking about, the tw- where I averaged 28 points or 24 points at the end, and made the All Star team. So it, it was I thought I was going to be a Chicago Bull for the rest of my career, and um, and not only, you know, was I playing well for the team, I was also, you know, really well liked. I had a great, great, fat, phenomenal relationship with the city of Chicago. So it, it, it just looked like jealousy. It just looked like, you know, he wanted something that, um, you know, that, 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 that was outside of basketball because none of it made any sense at all. Um, and I'll tell you a quick story about Kevin Locker and tell you how bad a guy he is. Um, I had a conversation with him one time. He tried to get me. He says, you know, Reggie, I don't know, um, you know, why you just don't go out and try to score 40 points every night. Um, I don't know why you just don't, you know, show everybody that you can do, you know, all this, these things. And what he was trying to do is, is make it basically make me become selfish and, and try to go on my own. So my teammates would turn against me. Then one time, um, you know, in Chicago in those days, they would chant my name you know, they would do the Reggie Reggie thing, you know, um, you know, it became popular because Reggie Jackson, they would do it for him. So it became something that they did for me. And um, so they were chanting my name one time. I had been sitting on the bench for a month and, you know, it just became an absolute joke and it made a joke out of me, but it also made people look at me like something was wrong with me. What did Reggie do that, that has got him so, you know, messed up with the coach? Like it became my fault like something was wrong with me when I had nothing to do with it. I became a pawn between ownership, not wanting to trade me and Kevin Lockery knowing that they couldn't fire him because they weren't going to pay five more coaches. So he just basically said he wasn't going to play me. Um, so one day uh, during the game, I can't remember who we were playing. Uh, there was, I think a minute left in the game and he tried to set me up. So with a, with a minute left in the game, he called me from the end of the bench, told me to go in. What he wanted me to do is tell him to, 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 to you know, kick rock. And But that not, that's not my personality. That's not who I am. I jumped off the bench. I pulled my sweats off. You know, I was so excited to go in the game. People, they gave me a standing ovation. When I got in the game, I, and, and it was about 58 seconds, I got up eight shots. And made like six of them. They they were the fans were going nuts. <laughs> and Kevin Lockery 
never even looked at me for the rest of the time I was there because he was so pissed off. He was so pissed off at what what happened. And that's, I'm not embellishing the story at all. That is exactly what happened. Reggie, I found, I found an old interview you did from that time period. And it was interesting. You had said you, you had this conversation with Rod Thorne and you said to Rod Thorne, Rod, the only thing that he hasn't do, done to me at this point, talking about about Lockery, is he hasn't broken my streak. And it was the next day that he broke your streak. Can you tell me what yeah, happened but, there? And, and, well, he knew it. He knew that that was – he knew – I had never missed a game. Um, I think I – first of all, I had I started every game in my career up to that point. And I hadn't missed a game. Uh up to that point. And when I basically, you know, he just didn't care. He wanted to do anything and everything to piss me off to the point where I would lose it. And I lost it many times, but it was never in front of him. I was in a massive state of depression, but I would never let him see that. And, 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 you know, I, I played tennis uh, before, I was a big tennis player back in those days. I played tennis before uh, the games. I'd come to the games in sweatsuits um, and because I already knew I wasn't going to play. And, you know, uh, somebody ordered pizza one time and sent it to me on the bench, which I thought was unbelievable. Wow. Um, <laughs> it was great. It was perfect. Um, Reggie, Reggie, and, how, did uh, you hold it, how did you hold it together? To have a guy who's an all-star and then the next year this happens to him and you're so frustrated, all the fans – are frustrated. It's killing your reputation about how they think about you. And you're, you're such a nice guy. How they think about you, of course, right. impacts you. So, so how are you holding it together when you have all these, these pent up emotions? I have no idea to be honest with you, because I would, I would cry at night, but I didn't want anybody to know. And, um, you know, one of the things in those days, coaches had all the power. Players didn't have that kind of power they have now. And, you know, players in those days would get blackballed. And so you had to play the game and you had to, you had to do what you were told. And, you know, so I was very prideful in the sense that I, I, I believed in, in, in being a role model. I believed in all those positive narratives. And I just didn't want him to know how badly I was hurt. And, um, uh, you know, there was no, there was no recourse because there was, what, what were you going to do in those days? If you decided not to play, then I've basically have done what he, I've done his work for him at that point, at least this way, it was pretty obvious that this was on him and not me. And it was pretty obvious that I was being, uh, treated poorly and it was, wasn't something that I deserved. But, you know, you learn over the years that, that, that people, you know, people don't care. You know, if you're not playing, you become, you know, yeah, it's too, too bad. But, you know, people don't really care. And, you know, the sad part is, is that <clears throat> I got traded 15 minutes mm-hmm. before the deadline mm-hmm. uh, of February. I can't remember, February something. Uh, I got traded 15 minutes before the deadline, and then they drafted Michael Jordan the, the next year. And, I, you know, if I just hung out, if I could have hung in there 15 more minutes, I'm going to get a chance to play with Michael Jordan, 
who knows what would have happened. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay, ma'am. That's okay. No, not a problem. Thank you. <laughs> did, did a woman just open your car door? No, no, no. This is an old lady. She thought she knew me. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. You never yeah, know. That was going to lead right into a Rush Street Reggie story. <laughs> just comes right to the car. I think I know yeah. you. <laughs> but I'm you well, I know. I know you would have had some. I know you would have had some rings, Reggie. I know that for sure. Had you? Uh, yeah. I had mean, you it, ended it, up it playing with that, that definitely could have changed my career. Obviously, I could have been Paxton. I could have been, you know, Steve Kerr. I could have been any of those guys for Michael Jordan. Um, and and what people really on the surface don't realize that passing the basketball you know, running a team is one of the things I did best. Yeah. I enjoyed passing the ball. I enjoyed running the team. I enjoyed finding the open guy. I, I scored. I had a lot of assists mostly because I was willing to give give the ball up. Sure. I was trying to score. And I tell people all the time, the reason I got a lot of assists is because I was trying to score every time down court, but the defense tells you what to do, you know, and the defense steps in, you find the open guy. If the defense doesn't step in, you score. So, um, but to alter that to become, you know, a playmaking point guard, that would have been no problem for me. And the problem with a lot of that goes back to what we talked about earlier. People had a different mentality, a different vision of who I, who I was as a player and a person because they thought that I had to be the, the guy. They thought that I was Hollywood. They thought that I was, you know, into being the, the, the star. Man, that's never been who I'm. Who I am? Never. Even today, you know, I hear things like that. It's just not who I am. I, I'm. I'm curious about this whole situation. Just my my last question on this: that in researching for this pod, it was incredible to stumble upon this. That at the time, the Bulls were being run by a seven man board of directors, which oh, included George Steinbrenner and Lamar Hunt. But how much of the mess that was going on in Chicago, different playing styles, certainly everything you were involved in, was the fact that you had, I mean, baseball, football people, all this, who didn't even live in Chicago, are making decisions right. about what the future of the team looks like? Probably 90% of it. Probably. Um, you know, Arthur Wirtz was the owner of the team back in the, a part of the days, and I don't know, the board of directors and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, it, it, the Bulls at that time, it was just a tax shelter for them. That's all it was. They didn't care anything about the Bulls. Uh, they cared about the Blackhawks, but they didn't care about the Bulls. And, um, you know, it wasn't until uh, Reinsdorf, uh, you know, became the owner uh, that the Bulls actually started to do things the right way. Now, Jonathan Kovler, who was a part, was a, a minority owner, I don't know how much an owner, he was always a good guy. He was always straight up, you know. Uh, and I thought that he was really wanted to do the right things. I just don't know how much pull he had at the time. But he, I, you're 100 percent right. That that board of directors, it was a joke. It was a, it was a it, all it was was a tax shelter for those guys. There's there's so much else that we want to get to. So I want to kind of fast forward a little bit. When you you know after the Kings, you're in Atlanta, and that you come in that so you, year. Say say no. This this would be a hell of a book one day, wouldn't it? It would be. Are you are you going to write one? I've been wanting to. I just can't find the right guy. You know, because, no, it's interesting. It's hard to find someone that understands what I've went through in my life. 
in my career. It's hard because there's so many avenues and so many places and so many different levels. Um, even being a green-eyed, light-skinned guy that's supposed to be good-looking, you have no idea the bullshit that I went through. You know, there's so much jealousy, there's so much crap that I had to deal with my entire career because of all of these things. It's hard to find someone or find a way to to encompass this into a a book, you know. But there's a hell of a story here when you talk about visuals and you know the type of places where I've I've been. Uh, there's there's a hell of a book there. It's a it's a book of triumph, that's for sure. Let me we'll write it. We can write yeah, it if you I want. I can write it, but let me do, let me do some thinking. And I, and I think that the jealousy might come into play here in, in Atlanta. When you come in with Moses Malone and you've got Doc Rivers there and you've, you've got Dominique and, and they're pretty high expectations coming off where, where they were the year before against the Celtics in the playoffs. And you're getting crushed in the press by your teammates. Why? Uh, I'm not really sure. You know, I came to a team where I was in Sacramento um, in a situation um, where, you know, they the, the Kings needed to do something because we were going nowhere. They needed to make a couple of moves. Um, I was probably one of the only guys that had some value. Um, and I said to them, I said, if you want to trade me, you know, I, I'm, I'm turning 30. I'd really like a chance to win. You know, if you could send me someplace to, where I have a chance to win, you know, I would appreciate it. And that was really kind of where I left it. The GM at the time, he's now the, 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 the president of the Dodgers, Caston, Stan, Stan Caston, was a mm-hmm. huge fan, uh, someone that I got along with great. I think that he wanted me. But I don't think Mike Fratello did. Ah. And I think they he, he, he traded for me, but I think it was against the wishes of Mike Fratello. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Now, when I say this about Mike, I, lo- I like Mike Fratello. Mike Fratello's a hell of a basketball coach. Mike and I didn't get along at all. For, and, I, again, I don't know why. You know, you know I, I've heard stories, but I don't want to get into that. Um, um, and, you know, to the point where he would do things and say, oh, I know one thing was he was friends with, 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 um, with Kevin Lockery. I know that. You know, that little click. They had that little click. That was, probably, that was probably it right there. Matter of fact, they were great friends. And, you know, it wasn't until years later. You know, Mike left me unprotected. He kept Spud Webb. He kept a couple of other guys. But he left me unprotected to be in when the expansion draft came around. And I ended up going second in the expansion draft to the Orlando Magic. Right. But um, I go to that team after averaging and averaging my career 18, 19 points a game, shooting the ball as much as I want. Um, and I go, to, I, go, I go there and I completely stop shooting the ball, doing all kinds of the things that I normally would do to try to blend uh, with the team. And, and um, you know, I did everything I could to, to, to be a, a factor. Now, um, we all got along really well. I mean, it was probably the most fun I had with my teammates. Killing me in the press, I don't know. I don't really, really remember what they said. Um, I did what I was asked to do. I took the back seat to everybody. 
and it was just, uh, uh, you know, nothing that I could think of offhand uh, was the reason other than, like, I couldn't even tell you. I mean, you could probably tell me what they said. I don't even remember, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I mean the, but, you know, but, but, but let, me, let me put it this way. Sure. Moses and I were, are, were, were great friends. Dominique and I hung out all the time. You know, Doc and I were cool. So from far as I could see, we were all did really well. Now, was there games when I have had bad games or something? I'm sure, I'm sure there was, but I don't know. I don't remember anything particular where I was, like, ostracized for, for any particular reason. Do you, do you want me to read you direct quotes? Sure, sure. Reggie's the worst thing that's happened to us all year. One teammate was oh, quoted as saying last week. For a while, I just thought he'd lost his game, but now I can see that's just Reggie. It's been a disaster. Reggie told us he'd submerge himself in our system because he only wanted to win at this stage of his career to prove that he's not a loser. Obviously, he didn't mean it, or he's just kidding himself. Off the court, you can't meet a sweeter guy, but on the court, his name is Reggie, just like 10 years before his habits are ingrained and have never changed. Nice. <laughs> Listen. Those weren't the guys. I mean, are there names behind those things? The only the only name is on one of them was Brendan Sir. Right. Well, those weren't the guys I was hanging I was I was hanging out with. And then the other ones the so, other ones were the other ones were teammates, but their names weren't their names weren't attached. Right. 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 Well, you know, who knows where that came from? Then, you know, that the truth is, you know, I it, there was nothing that that. There was nothing in our relationship that would say uh, that this was this was an issue. Yeah. You know, uh, because I mean, really, we got we got along like real teammates on every issue. And if guys were saying that kind of stuff behind your back, they wouldn't be friends with you, you know, otherwise. Uh, I'm old enough and wise enough now to know that if, if, unless it's a direct quote, it could have come from anywhere. You know, Brendan Sir was, you know, I mean, that, that, that was that whole click, you know, Brendan Sir, who I, who I got along with, uh, didn't have any problems with, but you know, there, that was, a, you have to remember coaches had all the power in those days. So it was just something that had to, you know, I, I don't know. I don't have the answers to that one other than I can only deal with the people in the way that they dealt with me. Right? And don't remember any of those quotes because I would have to believe that if I knew those quotes back in those days, if I thought that it was serious, we would have we would have some real problems on the team. That was that was Sam Smith in the in the Tribune. You were reading from Sam Smith. Wait a minute. Hold on. Sam, yeah. that's Chicago. I know. I know. But, you know, oftentimes when – a star leaves a town, the folks in, in that town are still interested in what's going on with, with you. And so he was writing a story about you with, in Atlanta. Interesting enough, Sam Smith and I were, we were always been pretty good with each other, but also Sam Smith is also the same guy that wrote in a book that, that I had a relationship with Michael Jordan's wife. Uh, before he they got married, and that's not true either. I didn't even know. I, the first time I ever met Michael's ex-wife was when he introduced me to her. So I, I mean, I just that was just stupid. You know, it, it's interesting you say that because you had there was there was a quote 
from UNSI years ago that said, I don't understand, you're talking about the press, I don't understand the adversarial relationship between the two, between player and press. How does that, how does that stuff happen? Well, I mean, you know, somebody says it, if somebody says it, then I guess it's, they can, they can write it, but that doesn't make it true. Were, were you, were you yourself ever misquoted? You know, a lot of times, I don't know. I really haven't ever really been misquoted. I'm sure I have, but nothing to the point where it's really stuck with me over the years. Yeah, that's good. My relationship with the press has always been really great. I mean, I've had great conversations and in-depth conversations with, with, with people in the press that I've, I've always been one of the guys that they could count on to, to, to talk. And I believe and you know, tell them everything you want them to know so they, can't, they don't have to make any judgments. And, you know, they can't say, if you tell them, make up the story themselves. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of my mentality, you know. So I, I never had any issues with the press at all uh, that I can think of. But, you know, I remember in, in Atlanta, uh, the Atlanta guy was a little shaky. Uh, Sam was not shaky, but, you know, you know how it is. I mean, you were in the media. We know you, we, 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 you know how we get fed stuff, Sure. you know, and, and, it, you know, it's unfortunately paper refuses no ink. So <laughs> if, if that's what you're trying to sell, that's what you're trying to sell. But I've never had any problems with not, not one teammate, Michael Jordan and I are, are, I wouldn't say we're boys, but we're, we've always been good with each other. There's never been any issue. People try to make a uh, used to try to make a, a thing out of me and Michael, you know, uh, a little bit. And when Sam wrote that in the in in the in that book, I was like, that's such bullshit. <laughs> but it kind of went along with the Rush Street Reggie and all the other crap, you know. So, you know, you just have to just let it roll off your back, man. You can't you can't even deal with it. I know it's not true, and the people involved know it's not true. So that's all we can deal with. Because people well, are gotta, draw their conclusion. Reggie, it's got to be so defeating because it's like you got you got a story like that which follows you around throughout your career, and then also as it relates to Jordan. And I know Noah's asked you about this on the radio, the Kenny Smith story about yeah you saying that no you saying that oh no rookie can replace me in Chicago, and Jordan says well I'm going to give him 45, and then he ends up scoring 43. And again, you're like, hey, that didn't happen either. Yeah, yeah, Kenny. I laughed. I mean, I laughed. I mean, Kenny's on TNT. He's, he's you know, he's, he's embellishing something. He's not, I mean, it didn't, it wasn't true. <laughs> you know, it wasn't true. It was, I mean, it, it, it was lying. But, but it was funny. But, you know, it, but it made for a good story. And I don't really stuff like that. I never really cared about anything like that, but people take that stuff to heart, man, you know, and, you know, um, you know, it's, 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 I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, how do you explain it? I laugh, you know, but, but it's, it just wasn't true. I I have to theorize though. My, My theory on this Reggie is that when it comes to Jordan, everything now has become this mythology and and there's so many stories about MJ and we, as we saw with the last dance, like so many of them have been distorted or just aren't true. Things that that he's made up, like 
about uh, the LeBradford Smith story or ways he motivated himself. And so then you start thinking like, okay, you just happened to be a contemporary, one of the best scorers in the league at that time. He replaces you in Chicago. So it yeah, almost seems yeah, it like sense. all these stories fit the fit the narrative that like, oh, I'm going to keep attacking Reggie Theus when, as you point out, that might not have been a case at all. No, I mean, it, it, but it actually fits. It, it kind of goes along with the with the narrative that makes sense. You know, uh, the people people sit there and say that I was traded for Michael Jordan. I was traded because of Michael Jordan. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's crazy. You know, but. You know the funny thing, and Michael Michael Jordan gives me. I've got a great Michael Jordan story. You know, kind of like the George Gervin story a little bit. Um, when I was playing in in, in um, New Jersey, playing against Michael, and I happened to have a great night. I scored 28, 20, 30 points, something like that. Guarded Michael. He was struggling. He didn't score much. We win the game. Michael, after the game you know, compliments me. It says, you know, Reggie guarded me about as well as anybody's guarded me all year. And, 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 you know, I had it, I had it laminated. I, I kept it forever. I still have it. And, um, uh, but I also knew that the next time I played him, what was going to, what was going to be going on, you know, and, <laughs> you know, it, I fouled out probably going into the fourth quarter. He already had 40 something points. You know, so I, I knew that was coming. <laughs> but, you know, the the point is he and I never had any, any, any beef at all. He and I never I mean we 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 fought against each other and we played, but there was never any disrespect and nothing. And uh, yeah, did he give me numbers? Yeah, I gave everybody numbers. Okay. Well what what whoop, whoop, you know? But in from Kenny's perspective, you know, it's funny about T N T is that um you know, they, they like to clown me. They, you know, Charles and Kenny, they crack on me all the time. And, and which I think is fun. I mean, I, I, I laugh at it. You know, people that are close to me don't really find it that funny, you know, because they, because it's people don't, because people hear these things and they take them serious, you know, then they get phone calls. Hey man, did you hear what Kenny just said about Reggie? Blah, 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 blah. I know he's lying. You know, I know he's just goofing around, but, uh, you know, I did that job before them, so I, I, I know how it works. It's okay to embellish a story every now and then. It's okay. That, that's actually where I wanted to go a little bit on, uh, on TNT. So when you go into the studio, you're in the studio, and, you're, and then you're, you're calling games. Was it seamless for you? You know, I've been very blessed. I, I think that all the things I've gone through in my life, all the, 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 see, I saw the NBA from a different perspective. I was an upper echelon player, probably second tier, you know, superstar guy. But I also played on a lot of bad teams, so I saw the good stuff and the bad stuff. So it gave me mm -hmm. a, a really solid perspective on basketball, life, and, and sports in general, and people. Um, so when I did games, uh, when I was in the studio, don't get me wrong, sitting in for Ernie Johnson, I, I gained a tremendous amount of respect for that man that night, not understanding, you know, how tough that job really, really is. And TK, who is the executive producer, really helped me tremendously. He says, Reggie, listen, you know, just, just before you go on, you know, 
we already know that you're going to screw up something. We already know that something's going to happen and you're going to hit a wall. You know, the only thing I want you to do is, is keep talking. Just make sure you keep talking and everything and let me fix it on my end. And that took the weight of the world off of me because all I had to do is just keep going, you know, and let him do his magic, you know, in the booth. So, um, uh, having a chance to, to, to do TNT and having a chance to, to, to be a part of all that was a great, great time in my life. Um, and whether I was in studio, whether I did games or I was on the sideline, uh, I, I have so much respect and I'm just so in awe of what they've accomplished because it taught me so much. And to be, to being able to do all those jobs, um, really kind of put me, you know, set me on the path that I, of my after basketball life. Um, and one of the reasons why I, my first thought of coaching was because of my broadcast career, hmm. because I could see, I could see how it was going. You know, every, every time there's a newly um, uh, retired player, that guy would take a few more dates that, you know, they were always looking for the next guy, the next guy. And I said, you know, what's going to set me aside from the rest of the former players? Well, Reggie, you got to you got to become a coach because that's going to give you the ultimate credibility. In those days, credibility meant a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, now you can just be a talking head. The the way it works, you know, if you've got good verbiage and you can talk the game, it's it's everybody believes what they're hearing and reading nowadays. But in back in those days, your credibility you know, was about where you've been and what you've done and, and where your sources have come from. And it meant a lot. Um, but uh, it just allowed me to do every job. And, uh, you know, that was a, just a f fantastic time in my life. And I'd roll out of that job on basketball season right in doing the TV show Hang Time. So it was a good time in my life uh, in terms of just working and being involved in sports. So how big was that court? On hang time, about, <laughs> uh, about, about eighty-four feet. Come on, <laughs> it wasn't, no way. wasn't very big. No, Wait, it wasn't no, very no big way. at all. Wait a second. No, no, no. Yeah, it, come on. I like to me on TV. It looks like it's about eighteen feet. Yeah, no, it was probably about three fourths the actual size of a basketball court. It, it maybe not, maybe not eighty-four, but I think that's the number that popped in my head when you said it, because uh, you know I. At that time, I created all the basketball plays. I did all the basketball stuff for the for the show, also. So you know, I I, I knew the court pretty well uh, from angles, from shooting angles, and things of that nature. Yeah, well, it's funny you you talk about all the bad teams you played on. There's probably no worse team than that collection of uh, that 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 group there. But you but you did a heck of a job as as head coach. When is the last time you talked to those guys, Anthony Anderson and? And uh, Jay Hernandez, that that crew. When's the last time you talked to them? Oh well, I mean, you know, I see Anthony often because he's a golfer, and I play in a golf tournament, and we laugh always because he's forever. Even though he's a pretty big star now, he's always going to be Teddy to me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so we and he and he says, "Well, you always be my 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 uh, godfather too." So it's it's always good. Um, but I have seen those guys over the years. Uh, and, and everybody seems to be doing okay. You know, obviously Anthony uh, Anderson is, is taking that. That was his first real job, you know, in the business. So he, he became pretty, pretty strong. 
you have any Deering Tornadoes gear? <laughs> I, I, you know, it's funny. I still have my locker. It's in my really? garage. Yeah. I still have it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I still have it. Yeah. I still have, yep. I still have the cards. I, I have a collection of cards and during, during, uh, tornadoes of one of them. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. I learned, I mean, listen, I learned a lot doing that sitcom and, and, and memorizing a script every week was not easy. Um, and, you know, all those things helped me when I was doing my broadcasting because, you know, everything in broadcasting, just like what we do in radio, I mean, everything is spontaneous rehearsal. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it doesn't have to be the first time you've heard it, but you got to be, it's got to sound like it's the first time. And you got to act like it's, it's, you know, so everybody thinks it's the first time. But, you know, those, those uh, you know, those things all kind of fed into each other. And it was, uh, it, was, it was great lessons for me. After that, were there certain roles that you auditioned for that you thought you were going to get and then didn't? Well, I mean, you're told no um, way more than yes. And, I mean, I, I can't remember. Um, you know, I started also doing, you know, I did the, I was the basketball consultant for Like Mike. I was going to be the basketball consultant on Coach Carter but I ended up getting a coaching job, so I couldn't do it. So, but I mean, I was up for, God, I can't remember. Um, I was asked, here's a couple of things. I was asked um, when I got ready to retire, hey, Reggie, how long do you think you're going to play? Because, you know, we're starting this new show called uh, Inside Stuff, and we're thinking about you might be good for being the host. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm still playing. I, I don't what am I, I'm going to be like retire. No, you know, so that, that was, that was interesting. Um, and then there was, um, it was snake. It was a, something New York, uh, Kurt Russell. And I was going to play in, in, in one of the villains in, in that, in that, in Escape that from New York? movie. Escape from Escape New York. From That's New York. what it was. Yes. And they go, Reggie, <clears throat> you can't be the villain next to, Kurt Russell, because do you know how short he is? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you would be like, you would be gigantic next to him. <laughs> you know, uh, there was a couple of other things. I know that uh, I was talked to about uh, this, this, this show that they were shooting in Canada. And, you know, uh, they were interested in me playing the part of Boris Kuja. And it was uh, in, in, in the movie Soul Food. Um, and it didn't, it didn't work out, you know, I, cause I was still kind of, it was a conflict of something that I was working on or something. Um, but there's been a lot of shows that I was, uh, up for and didn't get them. And, you know, in that business, you're told no, and you never know why. And then you, then it's like anything else. You see the guy they pick and you go, what, what what's God, that doesn't make sense. But you know, it's, it's, it's a very, uh, you know, it's one of those things when one, everybody likes you, but the one person, and if that one person has got the power, then you can forget about it. You can forget about it. Uh, so it's, 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 you know, you just never know in that business. That's for sure. Uh, one more question for, for me about, about hang time. That is when you're doing it and a lot of NBA guys were cycling through and doing guest spots and all that stuff. What, what, what did all the old, teammates and and your buddies what did they think of uh 
of your acting and, and seeing you every Saturday morning? You know, funny because people say to you like, oh, you know, I saw you doing this show and, you know, I was flipping through the TV and I saw this. I go, dude, you're lying. You know you were watching cartoons. You know you, you couldn't wait for Saved by the Bell and Hang Time and then Inside Stuff. You know you were just sitting there wanting to watch it. Right. But uh, uh, the funny thing is most of the guys enjoyed it a lot. And a lot of the guys were terrified when they came on set. And I was really good at making them relaxed and set, you know, and, and, and getting them through what they need to do. Um, and, and, you know, I, so many times over the years I've had, you know, when I was coaching, it was a real, it was a great recruiting tool for me. Um, because it was like, I was a fan of hang time, you know, blah, blah, blah. I didn't know you played basketball. You know? <laughs> I didn't know you really played and you actually were a coach too. Wow. You know, but hang time was, I love that show. <laughs> yeah, so it, it was a, it was a, it was another avenue that got me close, that got me inside the uh, the living room, so I could talk to the parents and kids about their uh, their their sons, and you know to come play for me. How, how so was, was uh, how was Kobe that when when he was on set? Oh, it was great. It was great. All the guys that came on were great. Uh, you know, and he was just a kid at the time too. So, uh, but they all remember those those moments of fear, those moments of of running their lines and, hey, come on, man, I'll run your lines. Let's go. You know, we can do this. Don't even worry about it. All you had to do, like right here, just, you know, just be yourself. Just be who you are because you're not trying to be somebody else. You're just being who you are. So just just say it with conviction. Just, you know. And um, so it was, it was, it was most of the guys, every one of the guys that came on the show, which was a lot, were, were fantastic. Kobe in particular, obviously, you know, touched me. Uh, quite a bit when, when we had the tragic accident. Um, but uh, to have him on just gave the show a lot of credibility. And uh, I don't know how closely they worked with the NBA, but the NBA was always very helpful in uh, being okay with anybody who came on. All right, a few quick hits before we wrap, and we, we appreciate all the time, Reggie. So these are a bunch of questions that are unrelated to one another. You play some golf. Okay. What's the best celebrity foursome you've been a part of on the golf course? Oh, wow. Best celebrity foursome. Mm. I play with Eric Dickerson, uh, Marcus Allen, Chris Tucker, and, and Marcus Allen and, and, and Eric Dickerson are really good golfers, too. Who, who's the best trash talker out there? They all talk trash. Gosh. I mean, Chris Tucker talks a gang of trash. Anthony Anderson talks a lot of trash. Um, you know, so they're all talking. The one thing that, that got me to play golf, you know, I was a 25-year tennis player. I, I swear, like Michael Jordan, speaking of Michael Jordan, he says to me one day, he says, Reggie, what are you doing? What are you, you going to pick up the sticks and start golfing? You've got this tennis racket in your hand. You're going to play. Well, what are you doing? I go, Mike, I'm not playing golf. Who wants to play golf? Like, I don't want to play golf. You can't get a workout playing golf. I mean, you know, I can play tennis for two hours and, and get a workout and I'm you know, it's fun. You play golf all day. It's boring. You don't get to do, you don't, I can talk trash all day. It wasn't until I saw Tiger Wood pump his fist that someone told me, yeah, no, you talk a lot of trash in, in, in golf. I go, uh, well, I want to play. <laughs> yeah, I want to play. But it wasn't, it was the true story is that I, um, I told Michael that I'm going to play golf when my knees go, that I can't get to the ball in tennis anymore. And obviously that happened. So that's when I picked up the golf clubs. 
your fifth season, you make the you make the All Star game that year we were talking about when you had that career high. You're averaging 24 a game, um, but also on the All Star team that year, it's Bill Lambeer, and you guys play the game in Inglewood, California, at the Forum. So, uh, what kind that? of conversations and what was what was just that experience like for you? As a kid growing up in that town against your, your high school rival, all these things going on, family, friends, what was that that singular experience like? <laughs> well, the, the, the game for me was a disaster, but I had a lot of fun. Um, Bill and I, you know, we, God, we've talked about our careers and our childhood on a number of occasions. And, um, you know, we always laugh. And, you know, and of course, like I said earlier, I was calling my asshole. Um, and, but, but just looking around, you know, I remember one time getting to play at halftime at a Laker game when I was playing, you know, some little league basketball and I got to play, you know, all those kids come out on the court and they play and they run up and down and all that stuff, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, I, and I'll never forget cause I wore number 33 and, you know, so being in the forum and, you know, that all-star was the, the, the infamous, you know, the, the, um, the, where, where when, um, Marvin Gaye changed the way people did the national anthem. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was, yeah, it was phenomenal. It was, I mean, I, I'm getting chills even right now thinking about it and talking about it. Um, so it's, uh, you know, to, to be on the court, to be at home, to be in front of my family and friends, I, I don't think I got <clears throat> one, one hour of sleep. Um, and it showed <laughs> when I played the next day. Um, but I had so much fun. It was such a great moment in my life um, to, to be there. And, uh, but I, I still am. I was definitely sleepwalking that day. So I have a, a Bill Russell story in which you, you had a quote. You said he, when he was coaching you at the Kings, you said he would try to teach us the way he did things. And a lot of the things he did were not how we were taught to play basketball. I said, Bill, that goes against everything I've ever been taught. And Bill yeah. goes, that's yeah. why you never won. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm curious, Reggie, yeah. what are some of the things that Bill Russell tries to teach you that you hadn't been taught? Well, it wasn't so much specific. I mean, it, like Bill was a phenomenon, you know, in the sense that, He's six eight. He played, you know, playing center, and uh, I mean, he, he was such a great, great player, and he had his own way of doing things. But a lot of it was not traditional basketball stuff. It, you know, I I can't really tell you specifically. You know, it, you know, in other words, force. You know, put this foot forward, put this one back. Bill, I've never done it like that. That's why I, I, it's always. I've always been taught since I was a kid to put this foot forward. Why would you do that? MF was Bill's favorite word. You know, with, can I say that word? You, yes, yeah. you can. Absolutely. Motherfucker was his favorite word. <laughs> and so he said, motherfucker, that's why you guys never won. He said, do it this way. He says, I'll never forget the time he comes to the locker room. He says, you know, he says, Listen, I want you guys, I want you motherfuckers to know one motherfucking thing. None of you motherfuckers better buy a bed because you're not going to be here long enough to sleep in the motherfucker. He's <laughs> 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 uh, a funny man. Oh, my God. He was so funny. He, he, and he, you know, 
he had nerve enough. Now, Bill's laugh is famous. Am I correct? It's like the worst laugh of all time. He'd have nerve enough to crack on my laugh, the way I laugh. I go, Bill, are you <laughs> kidding me? You're going to talk about the way I laugh? And, um, you know, I'll never forget that, you know, Bill would not sign an autograph. He would take pictures with everybody. He was always, you know, he was always really gracious in the way that he dealt with people. Um, but he wouldn't sign an autograph, but he would take pictures. But, you know, when his book came out, he, he, signed, my, he signed my book. Hmm. And I, I always thought that was so amazing that he would do that for me, you know. And, and you know, we, I thought we had a, a fantastic relationship. And you know who else was one of the coaches at that time was Willis Reed. And Willis was way different. Willis came, would come in playing Rocky music, you know. <laughs> and and, and he, then he'd have a boom box going with water rushing up on the seashore. And whoosh, whoosh. <laughs> supposed to be calming. I'll never forget Joe, uh, uh, Joe Klein running over to him. Joe's head was big as a Volkswagen. And he came over to me and he's rocking. God damn, Reggie, I, I'm getting seasick in here. Can you, can you get him to turn it off? <laughs> so, um, so, so did you guys used to just try to tee them up for stories? No, it was like it was nonstop, man. It was nonstop. Uh, just a, just a, you know, another, you know, banner moment in terms of just life in general. Uh, to have those moments with Bill Russell as a, as, as a player, um, and for him to be so candid and open, and uh, at the same time, you know, he was Bill, and he had his own his own way of doing things. Last one for me is on on coaching. So when you're when you're the head coach of the Sacramento Kings, lose first three games that year of your coaching of your NBA coaching career on the road, and then you get your first win at home. It was Kevin Durant's rookie year. Against, yeah, against, you know, I, you, know I, you know, I I played against him. I coached against him when he was at Texas when I was at New Mexico State. Also, okay. So then, so then, what do you remember about coaching against him in college? And then, what were your feelings? after winning the opener that night? Well, it, it was pretty interesting because, you know, in college, you know, being a mid-major school going against Texas, we had them beat. And, you know, at the end of the game, they gave Durant, like, five fouls. Boom, boom, boom. We go from being six up to, like, you know, four down. And it was the end of the game because they just – they didn't – you know, for whatever reason, good or bad, they they didn't want to see us win. That's for sure. And they gave him a couple of phantom calls that, that got them over the top. But it was, you know, I always saw I had him as a, a young player who was really cordial, really nice. He's never been anything but really straight up and and incredibly, you know, friendly to me. And he's he's even today when I see him, uh, he's the same way. Uh, that game in Sacramento. I remember, you know, coming from a mid-major school to the Sacramento Kings, I was like, wow, what, what, where, how did this happen? You know, I looked over at my, at my wife, and I, and I, I kind of smirked and put my hands up, and she starts cracking up because she, she knows I was thinking, like, you know, <laughs> how the hell did this happen? You know, how did, how did I end up here? 
but it was it was it was unbelievable because I think we were like 16 down in that game and we came back. Yeah, big second half. Yeah, big second half and won the game. Uh, so it was a, a just a great uh, great time and, and you know God is great you know because you go through these things you have ups and downs you have things that that go your way you have things not go your way um, uh, you know and you know the, the the thing I take away from the Sacramento Kings uh, I remember coaching against Pat Riley and coaching against Popovich you know uh, you know Phil Jackson's on the other side and. and you know, we weren't very. You know, we were we were competitive as a team. We won 38 games, which we could have we could have made the playoffs if we were in the East. We would have made the playoffs that year. And um, I remember one of the things that I always enjoyed the most when I was coaching is that when I looked down at the end of the game and Popovich or Pat or you know Phil, they're up coaching at the end of the game. I always felt like I did a good job. You know, whether we end up winning or not, I always felt like they had to work till the end of the game. And uh, mm-hmm. so that was always a, a, a great thing. And I learned a lot. It made me a better coach. I think it hurt my coaching career because uh, I don't really think that uh, Petrie wanted me to, there. I think the Maloofs, who were supporters of mine at New Mexico State, I don't think he really wanted me there. So uh, it was short-lived, but it, it hurt me because I was doing so well in college. But at the same time, I learned a lot that year coaching against other pros, um, coaching against other great coaches and, and coaching the best players in the world. Uh, I, I learned so much as a coach that I took back, you know, with me, uh, you know, to, to, to college basketball. Well, Reggie, we, we cannot thank you enough for the time. We, we, we always close – the podcast, because this is the Rejecting the Screen podcast, we always ask the question. It's like the old back-of-the-bus game of, hey, you can pick one guy for this situation. Can't say Jordan. So our question is, one guy that you've played with or against throughout your career that you would choose to reject the screen, go ISO, and get you a bucket in a Game 7, life-on-the-line situation, who's it going to be? Well, I mean, I, I obviously I played with some great players. Uh, you, you couldn't go wrong with giving the ball to Moses Malone in the low block mm-hmm. at any time in the game. You couldn't go wrong with giving the ball to Dominique Wilkins, you know, at any point mm-hmm. in the game if you needed a bucket. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, those are, were teammates of mine. Um, you know, obviously uh, throughout my career, I mean, playing against – what I call the real NBA, um, you know, you had George Gervin, you had, you had Bird, you know, you had all these guys that are, are well-documented big game sh- shooters, you know, get buckets when it really matters. Um, so it's tough to pick one guy, but I said as a, as a teammate, I'd give the ball to Moses Malone on the low block. I don't think there's anybody that can stop him from getting getting scoring from down there. Non-teammate, if you can't, if I can't say Michael, then I got to go with George Gervin. For that matter, you could go with Doc. I mean, don't make me pick, man. That's that's cold. Reggie, we appreciate all the time. Enjoy golf, hunting, fishing, and your family. Hope you're staying safe and healthy. 
and we'll be in touch. I appreciate it much. Anytime, guys. Reggie's right. There is a book there. It's not just about NBA stories. It goes all the way back to the first question we asked him about why is the impression there that you have lived this charmed life? You know, what's weird is, in a way, you sort of understand why that's the case. But you also say, like, in doing this interview, I think it's, I, I always feel like we come off these interviews and I feel like I know the person, right? And, and certainly in this one, I feel like I know who Reggie Theus is now. And what's wild about it, though, is as the story is being told and it comes out and you realize, well, he didn't get along with that guy who was kind of connected and then this hurt his career. And then all of a sudden these rumors are being told and, and that sticks to him. And it's like Jordan was everything. And so there's got to be sort of an anti-Jordan in a way, right? Like it's almost like he's bizarro Jordan in a sense. Like he was the star there around the same size uh, when they weren't winning. And then and then MJ's there. It's like almost like I get I sort of get it. Like I get how his career sort of went the way that it it did in terms of perception. But the wild part is he's such a nice guy and was so revealing and honest and transparent. Uh, I, I just, I, I loved everything he had to say. And it was awesome to get to peel it back and say, wait, you think you know who Reggie Theus is? I think hearing this interview just will change your mind about whatever your preconceived notions are. He's 58th on the NBA's all-time scoring list, 19,015 points, 29th on the NBA's all-time assist list. And when he retired, he was in top 25 in points, top 15 in assists. And I'll repeat it again. When he retired, he was one of four players with 19,000 points, 6,000 assists. Oscar, Hondo, Logo. Oscar Robertson, Don Havlicek, Jerry West, Reggie Theus. There's only 10 players now on that list. There's 10. So most recently, Tony Parker, Russell Westbrook, and LeBron James. Um, Gary Payton, John Stockton, Clyde Drexler. It, it's insane when you think about those kind of numbers. His And by the way, the other one that sticks out to me, if you go back and look at what he did statistically, he said because of Hondo at one point, we didn't ask him, but he's, he said this in a, in a previous interview that he Jerry Reynolds told him, when you turn 30, you better start getting changing how you get in shape and change how you treat your body. And it changed the trajectory of his career. And he was putting up the same numbers in the last year of his career that he was basically throughout his career. And you don't hear that very often either. I mean, this guy produced from the beginning to the end and uh, should be commended. But to make sure you check out everything else going on on the Locked On Podcast Network, Locked On NBA, five days a week. Hollinger and Duncan, Chad Ford's NBA Big Board, Locked On Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd, and your team every day on the Locked On Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by rockauto.com. Make sure you use Locked On in the How Did You Hear About Us box. It means a lot to us. We're on Instagram at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. I actually posted there the other day. Kind of mm -hmm. proud of simple post. Mm -hmm. Not so sure how effective it was. Simple. <laughs> Adam's on Twitter at A Smith Lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C O S L O V. Go back and check out all the other editions of the Going ISO on rejecting the screen. So many more interviews like this, as you said, Adam, revealing stories 
guys just being open and honest about their lives and their careers. Reggie Theus being the latest, and he was terrific. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.